I need to come clean before you this morning. Uh, there are days, I have my days, when I, I doubt whether the gospel is making any difference. I have my days when I'm doubting if the gospel really makes and is making any difference. I don't know, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm going to assume that a few of you, if you're honest, will assent to, to that statement. And then, then I have days where uh, I read in the news of this Ebola outbreak in West Africa, in particular in Liberia, this terrible disease and its, its uh, effects upon people dying by in, in droves. And, and then that's, of course, gotten a lot of media attention, maybe, maybe some hype. I'm no position, I don't know, but maybe some hype. And But equally paired with that, if you've been following this storyline at all, what's going on over there, is the story of a doctor, Dr. Kent Brantley, uh, who's also gotten justifiably quite a bit of, of press and attention himself. Dr. Brantley is a missionary doctor serving over there in Liberia. That in and of itself is a heroic thing, and staying in the game when Ebola came and the patients were coming into the hospital where he was serving, and then the time came on a Wednesday when he realized he had the symptoms. And uh, in, instead, of, instead of taking the, experiment, the one dose, the one dose of the experimental serum for himself, and yet a, another heroic deed, this missionary doctor gave the order, no, my colleague here, who has also come down with it, she's getting the serum. She's getting the serum. Now, praise God, uh, Dr. Brantley is uh, in recovery. He's in the States right now. Um, we need to pray for him. Uh, but here's the thing. The gospel is making a difference. That's the only way you explain stories like that. That's not a, just sort of this vain do-goodery going on there. Um, that's what's going on there. And it's, it's hardly new. Ebola is hard, you know, in terms of disease like that, sweeping through uh, uh, cities and populated areas, uh, that's hardly new, nor is, nor is the church coming alongside to, to resist it, if you will, and to stem the tide uh, of it at all. I, there's a quote um, that I came across uh, here. It's not one of the ones in your quotes and notes. I couldn't fit it in there, but it's from Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria in modern-day Egypt writing to his flock. Rough, it was Easter, roughly 260 A.D. And I want you to hear... This sounds like Dr. Kent Brantley, but just a few more of them. A long time ago, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger of the plague, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. For they were infected by others with the disease and with them departed this life serenely happy. Many... And nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. You may have heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The changed lives of Christians is the eighth. And it's not over. It's still happening. It's still happening. If you have a Bible, turn with me now to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we are nearly at the end of this study uh, through this book we call the book of Philippians. As you may know, it's a letter. You're trying to find it. It's after the Gospels, the historical accounts, uh, then Acts and, uh, and uh, Paul's letters as they begin with Romans and the Corinthian letters and Galatians and Ephesians. 
Then you get to Philippians, and uh, we're in Philippians chapter 4, the very end. Uh, We're honing in on verses 14 through 23. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 10 for the sake of the flow of what Paul is saying here. Philippians 4, starting in verse 10, reading on down through the end of the chapter. Hear now God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for the study that we have been in these last weeks and uh, thank you for inspiring your apostle to, to write these words there from uh, house arrest in Rome back to this church in Philippi. And uh, we pray this church here in Clarksville would be able to eavesdrop and listen in and benefit immensely here this morning from uh, your inspired word, uh, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, authoritative and true Uh, true to what is, true to life, true to what we need, more than we know. Give us ears with which to hear, we pray. Dig ears, dig ears uh, into our hearts that we would hear this morning. Amen. Well, here's a historical reality for you. I've already uh, tried to set it up. The gospel brings change. The gospel brings change. Uh, Rodney Stark is a professor of sociology and comparative religion at University of Washington. He is an insightful and prolific author in his critically acclaimed book, The Rise of Christianity. He wrote these words, and it's the third of the quotes if you want to follow along with me. Uh, These words, just a few years ago, Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life. In the urban Greco-Roman world, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fire, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture. 
capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. Well, how'd that happen? How'd that happen? One by one by one. One by one by one. And sometimes in surprising places. And Paul writes of that, those, that surprise factor, if you will, uh, even in this letter. You may remember going all the way back to chapter 1 uh, some weeks ago. We saw this, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. You hear a surprise of how this is happening. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, he's talking about what has happened to him, his imprisonment, and now he's awaiting trial and possibly even execution. He doesn't know. And that's served to advance the gospel. And I keep reading, so that it has become known throughout, hello, the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, though that's not surprising enough, we keep, you get on to our text over here at the very end of the, the letter, verses 21 and 22. I don't know if you caught this, but you've got to hear this. It's another surprising thing. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Hello. So here's the thing. Paul is under house arrest. He's in prison under, for, for Caesar's pleasure. And at the same time, the gospel, because Paul is there, is now penetrating Caesar's circles. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? Again, though, I ask, how did this, how, this happen? How, how did this happen? Well, I mean, you know, the one way you can answer is certainly through the work of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. But, but you know, instrumentally, step by step, how did it it happened, and, and how did it happen, for instance, that there are saints and brothers? There are saints and brothers, not just in Philippi, or who, to where Paul is writing, but in Rome now. How has that come about? And I think Paul gives us some clues here, uh, right here in this, this final passage that we're going to be looking at here this morning. And, and the clue is this, God uses gospel change to spread the gospel message. Now, the gospel brings change, okay? The gospel is what brings the change. But God, then in the wonder of His ways, uses gospel change to spread then that gospel message. People see the change, the difference, the impact, the transformation that Jesus makes in people's lives, and they're drawn to it. They're drawn to it. God uses gospel change to spread the gospel message. Oh, my friends, may He work such change in and through us. May He work such change in and through us. Now, the three things I want you to, to see here in answer to this question, what sort of change are we talking about here? What sort of change is Paul putting forward here? And you read explicitly and implicitly some of the things that he's talking about here. What sort of change can the gospel bring to people's lives like you and I that then he can use to bring more people to himself? What sort of change might that involve? Well, a change toward our things. I'm going to unpack these as we go. First, a change toward our things. Secondly, a change towards one another. And thirdly, a change towards our future. Those three things. The Lord works to bring people to himself as he's working those things in and out in our lives. Well, let's look at these in turn. First, the gospel change toward our things. What do I mean by that? I mean by that, our stuff. 
what we call our stuff. I put that in quotation marks. I mean, our, our material possessions, our wealth, our money, our possessions, our stuff. Look at verses 14 and 16, uh, through 16, excuse me. How, how, how do these Philippians relate to the Apostle Paul? What's going on, and, and what's going on there, I should say. Verses 14 through 16. And it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So what's going on here? How would you describe the way this, his audience, his readers, ha- have been and are relating to Paul as the apostle? Certainly not according to the natural approach. That is to say that what, what we know, what we experience on a daily basis, where too much is made of our stuff, way too much is made of our stuff. We find in our stuff our comfort and our ease Sometimes even our security and a sense of control. Perhaps even what we want as far as approval and status. We, we elevate our stuff to, to meeting needs like that. They become many gods or just gods in our lives that we trust and serve. And so we can't let them go, can we? That's the normal way. That's the normal way, the natural way. Well, that's not what we see here, though. A gospel way, a gospel approach. It's not what we see in terms of how these people regard and related to, to Paul. From the beginning, Paul says here it's quite clear that from the start of his relationship with these folks, and you can go back and read the account in, in Acts 16 and read between the lines and some of the things that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, when he's talking about the people in Macedonia, Philippi would have been included in, in all of that. You see that these folks gave above and beyond. All it was just it was it was this impulse within their heart generated by the gospel of Christ. Above and beyond. That is to say, not just giving to the needs of their own community, they're in Philippi, which was significant, but going beyond that. Now they're giving towards Paul as he's going as he's left, you understand. He's not there. He's moved on to Thessalonica. He's referring to that there. You follow the map. You know, look up in the end of your Bible. See what I'm talking about. You know, follow the little red or purple or whatever color that is. The following the map. Second missionary journey. Um, above and beyond. Not just in that sense, but also Paul speaks here of the of the, such generosity. In verse 18, he talks about sort of you know in a, in a in an accounting sort of terms. He's he's reserved, received full payment. He's overflowing because of what they've given to him. He is uh, well supplied because of what they... It seems that he's trying to... Please, Philippians, I love you. Read between the lines here. I'm trying to divert any more of your giving away from me because i got plenty. Don't give to somebody else. Um, such is what he's talking about here. It's, it's a generous support, what you see here. It's, a, it's costly sacrifice. These folks were giving above and beyond their means. They understood that when, when we talk about it, and it's not just words to say, I'm going to help carry your burden. That means you have to take some of the other person's burden on yourself. And that's what they were doing. Freeing Paul then to be able to, to fulfill the calling the Lord had, had put upon him. Now, my point in all of this is, again, God uses... Gospel change toward our things to spread the gospel message. And that's part of what's going on here. 
as to how the gospel is spreading. People are seeing this, this impact and this, this effect, and may it be so in and through us. All right, here's my truism for you. I'm going to repeat it several times in the next few minutes. The heart of change is a change of heart. The heart of change is a change of heart. Okay? So that begging a question, how was it that the gospel changed these people's heart towards their stuff, towards their things? Well, what was treasured became redefined. Uh, they had a whole new economy. Um, as Paul wrote in, uh, in chapter 3, Christ, Christ becomes the treasure. Knowing Him, living for Him, the wonder of being called, as he refers to in 2 Corinthians, as being deemed His, not Paul's, but Jesus' co-laborers in the gospel. Um, such that Gratitude, grasping that, taking that to heart, gratitude begins to form within us for what he's done. And generosity begins to flow out of that. Uh, for, you know, Paul, again, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now you take, the more you take that to heart, the more that becomes, it sinks into your bones. Generosity begins to take root. Your gratitude begins to take root, and generosity then flows from that. Change, change begins to take place towards our things. People see that, whoa, that is crazy, that is so different, but yet at the same time, compelling, drawn to it. May it be true of us. As we see here, Paul, the Philippians, and the Romans. Second thing, a change toward our things, but a change toward one another. Verses 17 and 18. Now by that, what I mean is how we regard each other. Changes. How we relate to one another. Changes. It's not the same. A transformation is, 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 is underway. And you see that here. A difference, a gospel difference is taking place. Verses 17 and 18. How do we see... Now I'm going to flip it. It's not, the, it's not the Philippians towards Paul. Now it's Paul towards the Philippians. And it's not normal. <laughs> this is not the way the world or we would otherwise work. Verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. Now again, this is not, this is not the natural approach. The natural approach being in terms of how we relate to other people is we treat others, each other as objects. Even our friends, even our family members as, as, as objects, as a means towards our ends, our goals, what we want. And so we will manipulate, perhaps by guilt, perhaps by shaming, or maybe even in some twisted sort of crazy way by going way overboard with gratitude such that we are groveling so much they feel like they have to give more to us. That's not what you see here with Paul. 
done in any way. That, that is this natural approach. We don't see that in any way. We see some, a new thing, a gospel approach, and two different ways of, of approaching, first, the, the, the gifts and the giver. The gifts, look at the imagery, the metaphors that Paul is using here. There's a counting image. He speaks of what they have given uh, here in... Where am I looking here? Um, verse 18... Excuse me, verse 17, a, a fruit that increases to your credit. This is a bookkeeping, accounting terminology from the first century. If you've got a footnote, you know, ESV, it, it's another way of translating it. As, is, it's a, it's pro, what you have given is profit that accrues to your account. It's like there's you have given, and the more you're giving, it's like compounding interest in this thing that's for you. It's a whole new way of looking at what people are giving. He also uses not just an accounting business metaphor, but a worship temple sacrificial metaphor, tapping back to Old Testament history where he talks about this as being what they have given is like a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, pleasing, pleasing to the Lord. Again, this is, you know, this is not just about me, just to say the least. Then how does he, how does he regard them as partners? He's lifting them up. You are with me. With me. Maybe not physically. Maybe not in terms of geography and space and time, but you are, we are with one another. Verse 15, he speaks of this partnership that they have entered into. Verse 14, he speaks of sharing in trouble, and that word is the same word in the, in the, in the root of the Greek as the partnering, the sharing. So you could say it's that they have a fellowship in or a partnering in his suffering. The point being, what Paul is getting at here is, is that he thinks of what they have given to him and so much. And he thinks of the people that have given to him, and he thinks so much of them. What, as he's thinking about that, what he's seeing and saying is that there, I am, am treasuring, I am prizing, I am more excited about the blessing that is in store for you because of what you have already given to me. I am more excited about that than I am about what you've given to me. I am more excited about how this is going to impact your life than I am about how it's going to affect me. Now that's a completely new way of looking at people. For their good and in love. And this is gospel change at work. Gospel change at work towards others. And God is using it to spread the message to others. May it be so in and through us. Okay, here comes my little proverbial nugget again. The heart of change is a change of heart. The heart of change is a change of heart. With that in mind, how then does the gospel work a change in our hearts toward each other? It changes the way we see. Or maybe you could say we see for the first time. We, it changes the way that we see ourselves. No longer are we at the center of everything, dominating everything about ourselves. Now it's Jesus. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the gravitational force around which everything turns in the life of the Christian. So how we see ourselves changes, and then how we see others changes as well. We see them not just as sinners. That's, of course, the only way at best. Now it's sinners, saints, saved by grace. Fellow, fellow sinners, saints, saved by 
grace. Partners, partners, you, me, all of us. Members, members of one body. Members of one family. It flips everything in terms of how we see ourselves and see one another. So it changes how we regard each other, and therein it changes how we relate to one another. The gospel changes our hearts. It changes how we uh, relate to one another, and, and God uses that because the world is longing to see something like that. God uses that to draw people to himself. May Again, I would say, may that be true of us. Thirdly, there's something else here, not just a change in terms of how we see our things, not just a change in terms of how we see one another, but I think it's also clear we see a change here in how we think about our future. And by that, what I mean is this. How we think about tomorrow, how we think about what's coming over the hill or around the corner, and how we're going to respond to it. The gospel changes that too in a radical way. Verses 19 and 20, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is not the natural approach in terms of how we see Paul and, these, and the Philippians and the Romans thinking about their future, responding to their future. The natural approach being that everything is so out of control. No one has a hand on the wheel. If anything, I am just a victim of fate, cold, cruel fate, and the hostile powers of random forces at work. And if there's any hand on the wheel, I sure as blankety blank, 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 no, it's not me. And so what happens because of that? Because I feel like there's no control, and at best I'm just a kite in the wind, or a leaf in the surf, I'm panicking as I think about the future. I'm worried, I'm anxious, I'm sweating and fretting about much and all the time. That's the natural approach, which means as a consequence of that, we then have to logically close the circles, oh, excuse me, circle the wagons, Play things close. Play things safe. Because things are too scary to do otherwise, right? But see, the gospel tells us that's... Well, you're half right. You're half right. You're not in control. You got that right. But... Our God and Father, to whom glory be forever and ever, amen, is our God, unlimited in His power and wisdom. Our Father, endlessly gracious, merciful, and kind. Now you take that to heart, and it changes everything. It, it, we move from understanding there is one whose hand is on the wheel, and instead of panic setting in, I can quiet down, rest, and trust Him. That's completely different than the other way of, of seeing it and responding. 
Paul says, again, verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In the context, Paul is saying, he is going to amply repay you everything from his endless, endless, endless wealth of resources pouring out into you and for you that comes to you through Jesus. And not just in terms of material investment and spending of yourself, but in everything, everything across the board. He is going to amply take care of you. Pour your, he is pouring out for you. Pour yourself out for Him. He's got your back. And left and right and top and bottom and side, all of it. See, God uses the gospel to change, if we'll hear it, to change how we see our future. And he takes that and he changes us and uses that to push that gospel message forward. Now, may that, again, I will say, may that be increasingly true of, of us. And here's the truism again. The heart of change is a change of heart. The heart of change is a change of heart. So how then does the gospel work to change our hearts towards our future? Let me, if we can turn there with me if you like. Matthew chapter 6. This is the very beginning of the New Testament, the first of the gospels. Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus says in the midst of what we oftentimes refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6 verses 33, 33 through 34. Matthew 6, 33 through 34. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, that is to say all your needs, that's what he's been talking about the last several paragraphs, all these things will be added to you. Therefore, with that in mind, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What Jesus is saying here is, is look, you can't see what's coming. He can. You can't control what's coming. That's right. But He can. What we see here in, in the Scriptures is that nothing can touch us. Nothing can touch us except what He has already deemed and appointed to bring our way for our greatest good. It may not be fun. Oftentimes it's not. It's like surgery without the anesthesia. But the reality is that because He is God, because He is our Father, nothing, nothing can touch us that He has not appointed for our greatest good. Now you take that to heart and let it settle down deep into your bones and it will change how you see your future and change panic to trust. And the world will notice and scratch their head and be drawn to it. And may it be so of us in growing measure. Now, I want to end with this. There are different ways that the gospel is brought home to the human heart. There's a chorus of voices, if you will, not competing, but, but um, meshing together. Now, for some of us, some of these voices speak, I don't know, ring a chord, strike a chord, more so than others. Let me just throw a few at you just real quickly here. There's the ontological argument. I'm going to start big and work my way down, okay? There's the ontological argument. That is to say, question of origins. Where did all this come from? Because the reality is, I don't care who you are, 
I don't care how befuddled you are, you can't get something from nothing. So that's the ontological argument. Where did all this come from? Then there's the cosmic argument. The closer you look, the longer you look, the more you look, you see evidence of design in everything. Hey, folks, design implies designer. Ontological, cosmic, philosophical. The Bible, Old and New Testament. Christianity, the Christian faith, fits. It fits with what we know to be true of life in this world more so than any other philosophy, any other religion, any other worldview. And unlike all those others, we don't have to have exception clauses and appendices and footnotes and live out of that. This fits according to what is the philosophical. I'll give you one more, the historical. At every point you want to look, it checks out, bears out, it can sustain the investigative pressure, put all the weight on it you want, everything that we know about the ancient world and history and customs and all of that checks out with what we see here. Archaeology, history, all of it, all, all the studies. So, there you go. Here's your chorus of voices, ontological, cosmic, philosophical, what was the last one? Historical. Thank you. You're paying attention. At least I was. One last one. Experiential. Experiential. The reality of transformed lives by the power of the gospel. The wonder of inexplicable, otherwise, inexplicable differences made by the power of the gospel. I'll tell you something in my own story. I have very rarely speak much of that from here because I'm not don't draw this is not about me. It's about the Lord. I grew up in a, in a family, a, a stable, obviously a family, but a stable family, um, good moral upbringing, church going, you know, there at pretty much every Sunday, but it was, I never heard the gospel. I never heard the gospel clearly proclaim this, a whole other conversation about that. But the fact is, where it, it took me on a trajectory. By the time I hit high school, my junior year, I was a hurting pup, um, really struggling, really searching, Really wondering. Um, I tried sports. I am not that athletic. Um, I tried dating. Girls are, I don't mean to offend 50% of you, but were really confusing to me. And, and, um, and I, I, after a time, I, I, I labeled myself the human doormat. Um, I then drifted into a partying crowd. And that wasn't pretty. And, and it didn't take long for me, in the midst of all of that, to have intense feelings of frustration and futility about everything. And I was heading south fast. And all the while, there's this other group of friends who loved me and cared for me, despite me, and at the same time, there's a joy in their life that I can't figure out, that I don't have, and I desperately want. And so that's paving the way then when they start talking about this crazy group called Young Life and going to these weekly meetings where for the first time in my life, I'm hearing about this Jesus in a compelling way. It's hitting my heart. And so then I go away for this week-long camp, and there I gave my life to Christ. 
And that was 30 years ago, pretty much this week. Now here's the thing. One reason I'm telling you that in connection with everything that we've been looking at here in Philippians 4 is it was the change in those people's lives that made a change in me. It was a difference I saw in their lives that made a difference for me. It was the lived out gospel that brought it home to my wounded, hard heart. And so I wasn't just hearing it, I could see it, and I could know it. You see, God uses gospel change. He changes through the gospel, but he uses gospel change to spread that gospel message. It was the, it's the way it has been from the very beginning. And is the case today, still today, my friends, I leave you with this. Ask yourself this question. Who has the Lord put in your life? And how might he bring gospel change into their life? Now, it's really going to be through him, not you. But how might he want to use you by bringing gospel change into your life? So let's plead with him for that to be the case more and more in our lives. That others might see the reality of this and be drawn to Him. Let's pray together. Lord, You truly do it all. You convince us of our sin and misery. You are the one who enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. You are the one who persuades and enables us to embrace You. Yours is the work finished once for all on the cross, and yet in that sense in which it's unfinished and applying it and bringing it home to our hearts, Still, too, yours is the work where change is made, difference takes place, a transformation takes place, and others are pulled and drawn not to us but to you. We pray that you would change us, make that difference increasingly so in our lives, that others would be drawn to you. All Praise and honor and glory are due to you. May it be so, even through our poor lives, that you make rich. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me ask our ushers if you.